0: And turn with me uh, to Psalm 133. This will now be the second time I've read it this morning. Again, those of you in Sunday school, as I was reading uh, the committee of thanks from Christian Conda, the minister in Fort Lauderdale uh, to the congregation. He opened with this psalm. I didn't even think of that, the connection between closing Sunday school and worship. But happily, I'm able to read it now for the second time to the church. Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David, behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we're thankful for this psalm. It is a psalm which has been precious to Christians uh, and using that in the broadest possible sense, meaning David himself. Everyone who believed the truth concerning Christ and looked forward to his day with gladness through all the ages, we we find it precious not only to behold, but even to behold the beholding in the psalm itself. And we ask you, oh God, that you would bless now not only the reading to our sanctification, but also the preaching. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. As you know, we concluded what was a long uh, study, although not that long, uh, of the book of Hebrews. Uh, I I wondered whether we could make it all the way through, and yet we did. Uh, We are going to begin another long study, a long look at Romans in a few weeks. But very often, uh, I like to take a break at this point and just to look at a few passages, uh, what I call standalones, passages which... I have a particular burden for him that I've wanted to preach and uh, very often uh, I'll take notes upon for a future sermon and put it in a drawer and wait for my chance. Well, here is my chance to preach this sermon uh, along with another that we'll look at next week and possibly one more. This psalm, Psalm 133, uh, very similar to what uh, Psalm 84 was to me. I preached that uh, sometime last year it has been on my heart for a while. I keep coming back to it. I feel a necessary urge to preach it. The question is, why would that be? Well, for this obvious reason, uh, speaking very frankly, and uh, that is the whole tendency of this pandemic in which we are living from the standpoint of the church has been to divide Christians. I think if we were honest, we would admit that. We've seen that. We've seen it broadly. We've seen it uh, less broadly. Satan, it would seem, has been setting Christians at odds over this single point. People who are in agreement about, it would seem, every other point. And I've been amazed at his success. Well, with Paul, we would do well. We would all do well not to be ignorant of his schemes. To recognize when it is Satan is busy and what he's doing. The truth is he's always doing this. Dividing or division is his first and his favorite work. Before he ever sought to deceive Eve, perhaps you would say, deception is his first and favorite work, but I would not agree with you. Before he ever sought to deceive Eve, he sought her when she was alone, when she was apart from her husband, because he wanted to sow division between the husband and the wife, or else to unite them in rebellion to God, thus sowing division between man and his maker. We know how successful he was. But the point is, What we ought to recognize, going back to the beginning of the Bible and studying the whole history of the church as we find it in the Bible, but also beyond that, and even thinking of our own lives, that this is what Satan is always doing. It isn't just his first and his favorite. It's his constant work. And he will use any opportunity at all that he finds in the world to divide Christians. I won't say that he succeeded in dividing this congregation. That isn't the point or the purpose of this sermon. But still... If we are honest, we would say that we've all felt the strain. And the danger persists, the danger, I mean, of, per, of division, it always persists. It's always there. And I worry that we've lost sight of this, that we have lost sight of the very thing David is speaking of here. And that is the blessing of brothers dwelling together in unity. And so here is a sermon on that subject. Let me also say this. Is it not also true that times when Satan is busy are equally times when we ought to be busy ourselves? Busy with what? Busy opposing him. And not only that, but we should realize our opportunity. Every time Satan is busy, the church has an opportunity to be advancing and to be outpacing him. Here is a time when our witnesses, Christians, ought to be shining brightly. When we should all be asking the question once again, what does it mean to be a Christian and a Christian church? In other words, we ought to see the whole ordeal we're facing as a nation and as a world and as a church as a glorious opportunity to reflect upon the nature of the church. And then the fellowship or the nature of the fellowship found within her walls between believers and then seeing that ideal, realizing it as it's found in scripture, we ought to strive for it now more than ever. And that is precisely what I propose to do this morning using Psalm 133 as my text, setting forth the ideal in order that we might strive for it. The first thing I want to notice about Psalm 133, and surely you must have noticed it as well, and that is the brevity of this psalm. It says so much so briefly, but that is part of its glory. Some things are best said briefly. I think you would agree with that. And so it would certainly be wrong of me to preach a long sermon on this text. But then I think in connection with this subject, we ought to ask, what is the church? The question which the psalm confronts us with directly, the nature of the church. What does she consist of and what is her essential nature? And to me, I think we have a fair description here in this psalm of what the church is. That is its its real value. What he is describing is a fellowship that is sacred. One that exists between brothers, but which has this priestly aspect and heavenly blessing. Where else can we find uh, what is described in Psalm 133 in its totality? Not just verse one, brothers dwelling together in unity. You could say that about nations or household. But when you take the entire psalm, it's clearly speaking something that can be found Only in the church, the communion of the saints. And so it's obvious then that in the New Testament setting, which is where we find ourselves, he is describing what we call Christian fellowship. That which exists between brothers who dwell in unity in the church. And so let me put it like this in order to answer my question. What is the church? What is her nature? And I said this in the new members class, very simply, the church is a gathering of believers in her most basic form. That's what she is. And the whole reason believers gather together in the church is because of their shared belief in the gospel. In other words, there is at the very outset in the formation of the church and believers coming together, an element of agreement and unity. Otherwise, the church would not exist, at least not according to our definition. A gathering of believers. The church is uh, the English word, a translation of the word ekklesia, an assembly or gathering, according to the Greek, an assembly or gathering of those who agree about the gospel. By definition, she consists of brothers dwelling together. Yet at the same time, we would have to say what was true of Israel in the twelve tribes is also true of the church. Brothers dwelling together, but not always in unity. They may come together in agreement at first, yet divide over other things. So often her fellowship is marred by disunity and division. And yet I think our definition of the church is still incomplete if it consists simply of the words brothers dwelling together. No, it is inadequate if we do not also say that her glory and her essential nature includes her unity as well. Brothers dwelling together in unity. That is what the church is. And that is how the New Testament describes her. Ephesians chapter four. Let me read it again. We read it a little earlier. He says. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I could keep reading, but we already have read that and you get the sense endeavoring to maintain the, the, the bond of unity and the uh, or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace You see, he's describing what the church is in those verses. And yet he is also, as we find here, setting forth an ideal that is often missed, something that must be maintained and striven for or strives for brothers dwelling together. We also think of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, that uh, believers might be together one, even as he and his father are one. Ephesians chapter two also comes in here again, thinking All we're doing at this point is defining what the church is for. He himself, verse 14, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, creating in himself, he says, one new man. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross and so on and so forth. One cannot think. Therefore, of the New Testament church as she is presented in the New Testament without thinking of her essential unity. Again, not simply brothers dwelling together, however they may be, but brothers dwelling together in unity and realizing that it is her glory as well as her happiness to do so. And so this is clearly a psalm for the Christian when you take it together with these New Testament texts. And not only for the Christian, but for the church as well. It applies to us very specifically. It tells you, or it tells us, if you will, about ourselves and what we are meant to be. As we come together as one body. Now, one question we ought to ask here is what this unity consists of. If brothers are meant to dwell together in unity in the church. How are we to understand the unity? And the first thing that we see very clearly Is that it is a unity of office or of standing of brothers dwelling together in unity. We are brothers. That is the crucial statement here. It's the key to understanding what he's describing. He isn't saying how blessed it is when enemies dwell together in unity or neighbors or family members or citizens All of those things might be true, but that isn't what he's saying. How blessed it is, or how good and pleasant, rather, it is when brothers dwell together in unity. A unity of office or of standing. Now, we might ask how they ever came to be brothers in the first place. And then we might know why it is they seek to dwell together as well as the basis of their unity And here is where we must take the psalm as a whole, not simply looking at verse one again, the blessing, the goodness, the pleasantness of brothers dwelling in unity. But the reference in particular in verse two to the precious oil by which Aaron and his sons, that is to say, the high priest were anointed. They were anointed, we read, with an effusion of oil, an oil which. Was poured upon the head. It dripped down the beard. It flowed down the garments. It's a very crucial statement. Let me read it again. It is like the precious oil upon the head. Running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron. Running down on the edge of his garments. We must remember. That from the Old Testament standpoint. And having just read Hebrews. I think we are especially prepared to see this ourselves. That it was. uh, Above all the priesthood that bound. The people together as one body by one common representative before God, the one man, the great high, or the high priest rather standing before them, anointed in the holy of holies, representing them as their high priest ministering in the temple. He represented the whole nation. And so the anointing which he had and which is referred to here was theirs. That's actually the picture which is being described here. As it poured, uh, as it was poured out upon him, it poured down his beard. It dripped down to the edge of his garments, and it was a picture of the blessings that flowed from him in his high priesthood as their representative to the people. His anointing was their anointing. His anointing was thus their unity. And that is exactly how we should understand Christ's priesthood. That he takes or that as he takes hold of our humanity, as uh, as the apostle describes in Hebrews chapter two, he binds us to himself by the closest possible bond. He becomes one uh, like us so that he's fit to represent us before God. And he is therefore, he says, not ashamed to call us brothers. We are his brothers now that he is our high priest and a man like us. But think of the anointing specifically. His anointing is our great high priest. And then realize in his priestly humanity, Jesus Christ, his anointing becomes our anointing as the oil of his grace drips down, reaching us. So it makes us brothers, brothers with him, our common head, but also brothers with one another who share with him uh, a common who share in him, rather, a common salvation. They are thus able to dwell together in unity because of him, their high priest, whose anointing reached even them. But then what do these brothers share in common now that Christ has made them one? For one thing, brothers who dwell together in unity under one common head share a unity of mind and of purpose, Certainly, that's what we find described in the New Testament and what we uh, hope to find as we come together in this church together. They are, as I've already said, in agreement about the gospel and even a certain viewpoint about the gospel. This is what brings them together into the church and into a particular church. It is to express their common belief together. First and foremost, they are Christians They're Christ's little ones, dearly beloved by him. And this is what makes them brothers, saved together by one common Lord. So they dwell together in a state of blessed unity. Also unity of heart. Not just unity of mind, but unity of heart. There's a shared affection and love for one another. A feeling of love, which I have for my brother. I find that I cannot help but love those whom Christ loves and whom he regards as his brothers. If they be his, then they are mine. If he loves them, then so must I. And the more closely my heart is bound to his, my great high priest in heaven, the more closely it is bound to them, them, they whom he loves. Some have noted here that where there cannot be unity of mind where there is some point of disagreement between brothers in the church as is apt to happen from time to time still they might dwell together in unity a unity of heart a unity of love which is to say they might still exist together in the church as brothers because of a shared affection even though there is disagreement those with whom i differ i still love where there there is not agreement we are still brothers Times when Spurgeon says when they meet in, a, in affection, though not in opinion. But lastly, there's a unity of the spirit, which we saw described uh, in Ephesians chapter four. And Paul also describes in Ephesians chapter five, the way in which the Holy Spirit binds us together and makes us one. In other words, we recognize in some sense that it's not our own doing. That it is the spirit who binds me as a believer to all other believers. And so I am not free to transgress this work. And that if I do, I am guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit in his work. Another way to put this using the language of Ephesians 5, which I'll read in a moment, is that where the spirit is most dwelling in fullness. There will be a spirit of Christian unity and brotherly love. You will find What is described here found in the church, brothers dwelling together in unity. That's not only what you find in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6, but also Ephesians 5 verses 17 through 22. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. And then listen to how he describes the fullness of the spirit descending upon the church Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That is a picture, he's saying, of a spirit-filled church. That is a picture, I think you would agree, of brothers dwelling together in unity. And the reason they're able to do so... Is because of the presence and the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But let me notice certain things here about the words themselves. There are a few words I want to highlight in order to bring out fullness of meaning in the psalm. And the first is the first word. Behold. Behold how good and pleasant it is. We'll come back to this word. But you see already he's saying a great deal by this one word. He is saying in essence Here is something to behold, something to stand and consider and be amazed at. Brothers dwelling together in unity is something that is rare. It's something that is extremely precious. It is a wonder that ought to amaze us and inspire us. It cannot be seen and ignored or treated lightly. Whenever you see such a thing, Spurgeon says, pause and gaze upon it. Next. He describes it like this. It is good and pleasant. That to those two words. Good and pleasant. Good, first of all. Good in itself. Good in the blessings it brings to man and to others. I mean, the man who is dwelling in unity and the man who beholds it. Good in that it is profitable. And is that which God approves of. It is like a good work. But especially not good, but also and especially pleasant or not only good, but pleasant, pleasant in the sense of very simply that it brings pleasure, that it that it is pleasing. Well, to whom is it pleasing? First of all, to God, first and foremost, here is something God beholding his church, dwelling together as brothers in unity that is pleasing in his sight Something that he delights in, particularly and especially something that he enjoys and loves to see. Something, as we'll see at the end of the psalm, that he is sure to bless. For there he commanded his blessing. When he found the church dwelling together in unity. But also pleasant to those who enjoy its fruits, to those brothers who enjoy this blessed unity and especially them. Those brothers who dwell together in unity will be delighted and pleased by their union. It is a happy experience and beholding it, we are invited to enjoy it ourselves if we're not already. But it's also pleasing to others. That is, those who are able to behold it and gaze upon it, even though they are not as yet able to enjoy it themselves, even as they wonder at it merely by beholding it, they are pleased by it. But then notice these two in conjunction with one another. How good and how pleasant. How often that which is pleasing to us is not good. That men take pleasure in that which is bad. I'm referring to sin. The pleasure of sin. Or how often something we find is good but not pleasing. Like affliction. But here is something David is saying that is good and pleasing. A source of pleasure and happiness that is also good. And because it is good. Something that brings with it real spiritual profit. And real delight to the soul. But then we also need to look at this word. How. How good. How pleasant. Not how good and pleasant. But how good and how pleasant. Here we have the man David beholding it himself. And rather than trying to measure it, he simply declares how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like and, uh, and, and so on. He just admires it and marvels at what he beholds. And he cannot imagine anything better as he does so. But finally, we have to see what he means by the word dwell. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now, that, too, is surely significant. Let me give you what Thomas Horton has to say. To dwell is a word of residence and continuation. There is also pertaining to the love and concord of brethren of perseverance and persistency in it, not only to be together or come together or to meet together for some certain time, but to dwell together in unity. That is, I think, a very good definition of this word. So often brothers find they must part ways for the sake of unity. We find that in the New Testament, we find it in the Old Testament. We find it in our own lives. Or else we find that brothers, I mean, two men who are Christians, for whatever reason, if not uh, needing to part for the sake of unity, they find that they can only be together for a short time or else break into all sorts of disputes. But look again at this word and consider its meaning, what it is to dwell. It's the language of residence, the language of continuation, the language of perseverance and persistency, as Horton says. What is what is being commended here, beloved, in our definition of the church is not a brief period of unity, but an abiding unity that exists between brothers this side of heaven. Such that is found in heaven itself and when it is found in the church on earth is like a heaven on earth. But having said that, let me say lastly, how can we know how good and how pleasant it is? First, by beholding it. Again, that is the central assertion of the psalm. What he's asking us to do, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You won't see or know how good and pleasant the thing is until you behold it for yourself. So if you want to experience the blessed fruits of this, you have to first consider what it's like. You have to see that it is actually good and pleasant and just how good and how pleasant it really is to believe it yourself. In other words, you'll never believe it. You'll never desire it until you take the time to consider it. It's no different than when it said in the New Testament, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first thing John asks us to do is just to behold him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Understanding that if only we would do that. And consider him as he really is. To behold him in this way. Well then we might believe in him. And so be saved by him. And yet we find. That that is the one thing which men are least likely to do. Just to stop and to gaze. And to consider. Men are so busy today. They never stop and think. They never consider the true worth of things. And the things that are really valuable. We live in such a superficial age. And so there's no blessing because there's no beholding those who hurry to and fro, but never stop and consider and behold what is pleasant and pleasing and profitable for their souls will find no profit and never know true happiness. They will never know what is really good and pleasant. But second, again, in answer to the question, how can we know how good and how pleasant by seeing what it's like? And that's what he tells us in verses two and the first part of three. It is like. The precious oil. It is like the dew of Hermon. By uh, similitudes. First he says. Verse 2. It's like the precious oil. Upon the head. Running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron. Running down on the edge. Of his garments. He's saying a great deal here. We've already looked uh, briefly at that verse. Speaking of the priesthood. In connection with the fact that we are brothers. Never think of it otherwise. But the real point. Is not on the priesthood. So much as it is on the oil itself by which the priest was anointed and so the people as well. The oil that was poured down upon his head and flowed down, he says. Well, what can we say about it, that oil? Well, for one thing, we already see him saying that it is precious. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down. In other words, it's costly. It's like a costly jewel of considerable value. It's something which cannot be bought cheaply. That's what Christian union is like. It's costly. It's extremely valuable and precious to those who possess it. It's, valuable in, its value, in fact, is noticeable even to those who do not have it, but merely behold it. It is evidently something which is very precious. But then at the same time, we see in its costly aspect an element of waste. An effusion of this oil upon the, the high priest. So much oil is used. It isn't sprinkled, you see. It's poured out, running down the beard, running down to the edge of his garments. Here is the language of love. That of waste and extravagance. Here is, says A.B. Bruce, the invariable attribute of all true love. It's what we see when our Lord was anointed at Bethany. So it is seen here on Aaron's head, dripping down his beard, down to the bottom of his garments, the rich effusion of costly ointment. And why such waste? Well, that was the question, you remember, which Judas asked. And all who oppose the spirit of Christian union and unity ask themselves. But it's a foolish one. Christian love Which is the basis of Christian unity asks no such questions it gives all even the very best and so it appears even uh, or in the eyes of the world to be wasteful and unnecessary. But here is the way for the for brothers to dwell in unison the oil was also holy it was set apart for holy use. For anointing the high priest in his priestly service on behalf of the people. And by indirect means the people as well as he represented them. It was their anointing as well. It's what made them holy and set apart to the Lord. Their relationship to him and his anointing. And here again we see what Christian unity is like. He's saying it's a holy thing. Comparable to the anointing of the high priest in his holy office. Together we take up our priestly service and are consecrated to God's service. Not alone, you see, but together. Here, David is saying is an anointing. A blessing from on high, which runs down. That's actually the refrain, which you might have noticed. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down. The beard of Aaron running down like the dew of Hermon descending. Actually, literally, it would just be again running down. Down, 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 giving us a strong sense of where this blessing comes from. Derek Kidner, speaking of the threefold repetition, down, 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 says this. In short, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. You see, Aaron didn't anoint himself. When you think of the metaphor here, you'll see it clearly. He was anointed. It was something of a bestowal of blessing from God himself. And yet that anointing which flowed down from heaven upon his head, flowed down from him upon the people. It ever flows down, he's saying. And so it is with this heavenly blessing bestowed rather than contrived wherever it is found, it is given. But where it is given, it flows down, down, down. And we see this, lastly, when he speaks uh, of his uh, second similitude, the dew of Hermon. Now, I spent a good bit of time. Actually, let me read. It's like the dew of Hermon. Descending upon the mountains of Zion. I spent a good bit of time trying to understand what that even meant. And I'm still not sure I understand it even now. But the sense is something like this. Hermon, as the highest peak, closest to heaven was like the peak which pulled down the dew from heaven and thus watered and nourished the lower hills of Zion or Jerusalem. This is how Luther puts it. The prophet uses the common manner of speaking, for whereas the mountains oftentimes seem to be those that behold them afar off to reach up even unto the heaven, the dew which cometh from heaven seemeth to fall from the highest mountains unto the hills which are under them. Well, that seems to me to be a good sense. The highest mountain drawing down waters from heaven and watering the lower hills. Like the dew, he says, that fell from Hermon and watered the lower hills, nourishing them, blessing them. So the union which brothers enjoy is a blessing from above, which blesses all it touches It's like the dew of Hermon, heavenly in its character, flowing down to that which is below, ever flowing down. But thirdly, in answer to the question, how can we know how good and how pleasant it is? And here is the really important thing, the final phrase. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And there that is. In Jerusalem, figuratively speaking, where the waters flow down from Hermon. Well, where there is brotherly love, there is this blessing. It is a blessing which the Lord commands and whatever he commands must be. In other words, you can't have brothers dwelling in unity and not have this blessing. God will command it. He will make absolutely certain of it. But then we ask what blessing? He says life Evermore or life forevermore. In other words. The life of heaven itself. Exactly what we've been considering. The life. Which flows down to us. Yes of course that life is one of perfect harmony. And love there in heaven. Brothers always dwell in unity. Never is there any discord. Those who live together in heaven in the presence of God. Always dwell together in unity. That is part of the joy and the bless the bliss of heaven. But you see, again, understanding the metaphor, this blessing flows down to us too. The joy and life of heaven is found even now in the church, where brothers dwell together in unity, like the dew of Herman. So those whom it touches, it's like they're in heaven already. And never was such a union found where the Lord did not command his blessing. But then let me ask you in closing. Having said all that from this brief psalm, do you see how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity? And do you desire it? Never shall we know the full power of the anointing till we are of one heart and of one spirit, says Spurgeon. Yes, and here is a blessing that is certain, oh, that we would seek it, oh, that we would not only behold it with David here, but find it, praying that this heavenly dew might descend upon us too. Yes, it's like the oil which flows and the dew which descends. We cannot contrive it, only God can bestow it. But do any of us doubt that he will if we just tell him that it's our desire to have it? Here is something the Lord loves and something which he loves to find among his people. Will he not make the dew come down, down, down upon us who seek it so that he might command his blessing among us life forevermore? Amen. And let us now come to the table.